0: Father, during this Lenten season, help us to turn away from sin and turn our hearts towards You in new ways. Help us to remember the suffering love of Your Son, our Savior, His sacrifice on our behalf, the righteous for the unrighteous, in order that our sins might be forgiven and that we might be washed clean by His blood and that our right standing before You might be secured. Help us to remember that our whole salvation is found in Christ Jesus, the crucified and risen One. Help us to remember that we are called to take up our own crosses in union with Christ, dying to ourselves, dying to our selfish desires that we might live a new and more Christ-like life. Oh Lord, give us the grace To so love and serve you in faith that we may be found worthy and blameless at the last day. We ask, Lord, that even as your mercies are new every day, especially your mercies are new each Lord's Day, give us your gifts today, your gifts of mercy, gifts of life and glory and wisdom. As we draw near to you in your heavenly sanctuary, the true holy of holies, may we enjoy your favor. In your presence, getting the help we so desperately need as we come before your throne of grace. All this we pray through Christ Jesus who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us pray together. Father, we ask that today we might grow in our understanding of your institution of marriage may marriage help us better understand the gospel and may the gospel help us to better understand marriage. May we understand that the archetype of wedlock is Christ's covenant with his church, his bride. And so may we better understand what marriage means in our families, in our church, in our society. This we pray through Christ. Amen. In our day, we are very used to political and cultural battles over marriage. In fact, Alabama, our state, is in the headlines almost every day right now because the most recent and most intense legal battles over marriage are taking place right here in our backyard. For us as Christians, our standard of truth is always God's word. God is our creator. God is our ruler. God is our redeemer. God has spoken to us. God is there and he is not silent. God has given us his truth in this book, in the scriptures. The scriptures are inspired by God's Holy Spirit. They are God's infallible and inerrant word to us. The scriptures are show us things and teach us things we couldn't learn any other way unless God revealed them. They show us where we came from, where we're going. The Scriptures tell us the way of salvation and show us how to live in accord with God's design for our humanity. The Bible is a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Indeed, without the Bible, we're in the dark. The Bible is our We gaze into its light to see the glory of God, but we also look at everything else in the light the Scriptures provide. And indeed, the reason our culture is in the dark, the reason we have so much confusion in our day about marriage, about gender, about sex, is because we have closed our eyes to the Word of God. We have cut ourselves off from the only source of truth and light. But our culture is not the first to be in confusion and darkness over these issues. Indeed, in Jesus' day, many in Israel, amongst the covenant people, even amongst the political and religious leadership of Israel, were deeply confused about God's plan for marriage. God's design for men and women and sex. In this passage in Mark chapter 10, Jesus shows us God's design for marriage and indeed the crucial role that marriage plays in God's creative and redemptive purposes. He shows how disciples should view marriage and embrace marriage. So what we're going to do, we're going to spend two weeks on this passage. Today we're going to look primarily at Jesus' design for marriage. Next week we're going to look at Jesus' defense of marriage. Today we're going to talk primarily about the covenantal nature of marriage. Next week we'll talk about the complementary nature of marriage. So let's talk about the covenantal dimension of marriage. God's design for marriage. It's really the covenantal aspect of marriage that the Pharisees confront Jesus about. In verse 1, Mark tells us about a geographic shift in Jesus' ministry. He moves from Galilee back across the Jordan into Judea. He hasn't really been in this territory since Mark chapter 1, since his baptism and the beginning of his ministry. Now, it's important to note this is roughly the place where Moses preached a sermon to the Israelites before they moved into the Promised Land and conquered the, the, the Promised Land in order to settle there. We know that sermon by Moses as the book of Deuteronomy. And that's significant because a passage from Deuteronomy will be quoted here in this passage. And it's really going to be the the center of the discussion. Uh, This is also the area where Satan tested Jesus in the wilderness. And that's significant because verse 2 says the Pharisees came to test Jesus here. Now we know from Matthew and Luke's account that Jesus t- was tested by Satan three times in the wilderness. Three times Satan came to test Jesus in the wilderness. What's interesting is in Mark's Gospel, the Pharisees test Jesus three times. In Mark chapter 8, when they come and seeking. Him seek a sign in Mark chapter 12 when they ask him about paying taxes to Caesar and here in Mark chapter 10 where they ask Jesus about divorce. So clearly there's some kind of parallel between Satan testing Jesus and the Pharisees testing Jesus. The same word that was used for the temptation of Jesus back in Mark chapter 1 is used here for what the Pharisees do when they bring this question to Jesus. And I think that shows you where the Pharisees stand. They are on Satan's side against Jesus. They are satanic attackers seeking to stop Jesus and to destroy Jesus. In fact, just as we know from those temptation accounts in Matthew and Luke that Satan twisted God's word. And interestingly, Jesus answered from Deuteronomy. Just as Satan twisted God's word in those tests, we're going to see here in just a moment that the Pharisees are also Scripture twisters. They twist the Scripture to suit their own purposes. Now, why do they ask Jesus about a man divorcing his wife? How exactly is this question a test? How is it a trap for Jesus? How is this question so tricky? Well, for one thing, remember the geography here. Jesus is now back in Herod's territory. He's back in Herod's jurisdiction. Remember what we learned about Herod back in Mark chapter 6. He had unlawfully divorced his wife, and he had taken his brother's wife as his own. Herod, you might say, had attempted to redefine God's institution of marriage. John the Baptist had the audacity to speak out against this redefinition of marriage on Herod's part. And what happened? Well, John defended God's definition of marriage. He defended God's standards for marriage. And he ended up getting beheaded. Uh, See, marriage uh, was just as politically and culturally controversial and and politically charged back then as it is today. And then as now, those who publicly defend God's definition of marriage and God's standard for marriage put themselves in grave danger. You're at odds with the powers that be. That was true then. That's true in our own day. What's really interesting about this is the fact that normally the Pharisees were not friends with the Herodian party, with Herod and his Supporters. But back in Mark chapter 3, they allied themselves together, the Pharisees and the Herodians, they allied themselves together against Jesus. It's the old, any enemy of my enemy is my friend, uh, policy. And that's what is in effect here the Pharisees and the Herodians together, teaming up against Jesus. Maybe the Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce so he would go on record teaching the same thing that John had taught. And so perhaps Jesus, like John, would stir up Herod's animosity and like John would end up with his head on a platter. They're out to get Jesus. They'd like to see Jesus get in trouble. And they're thinking perhaps Herod will do our dirty work for us. The last guy to criticize Herod's marriage got killed. Maybe Jesus will too. And in fact, we also learn back in Mark chapter 6 that, that Herod has already linked Jesus and John. In fact, he thinks of John as he thinks of Jesus as John raised from the dead. So maybe Herod will think, "Oh, I've got to kill him again. I've got to behead him again." The Pharisees ask, "Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife?" Now, Jesus shrewdly answers their question with a question of his own as he so often does. He Answers their question with another question. He says, what did Moses command you? You Note here, Jesus is appealing to the law. He appeals to God's word as his moral and ethical standard. If this question is going to be answered, it's going to be answered from the word of God. He points them to God's revelation through Moses. And so the Pharisees then answer by quoting a snippet from Deuteronomy 24. But before getting into that, I want you to notice something else about the language shift that takes place here. Jesus asks about what Moses commanded. The Pharisees respond with what Moses permitted. The question's about a command. What did Moses command? The Pharisees answer referring to what Moses permitted. There is... A disconnect here. The Pharisees have disconnected themselves from the positive vision of marriage articulated and commanded in God's Word. Instead of embracing what's commanded, instead of embracing that positive vision of marriage, they're looking for loopholes. This is their heart. They're looking for permissions to get out of marriage and marital responsibilities. Their main concern is not with keeping what Moses commanded, but with finding what Moses permitted. They're looking for legal fine print and escape clauses. They're really looking for an ancient version of no-fault divorce. Any cause, divorce. Now, they quote from Deuteronomy 24, Deuteronomy 24, it really is an interesting law. We read it this morning. It describes an interesting situation. It says, if a man marries a woman, and then he finds some uncleanness in her, and writes her a certificate of divorce and sends her away, and she marries another man, and if that man also divorces her with a certificate, the first husband cannot take her back as his wife, Again, now I'm not going to go into all you know the theological rationale for this law. That would take us too far, afield from from where we really need to focus this morning. But what is this law saying? It's 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 kind of a, an odd law uh, to say that a, if a woman gets married and then divorced and then marries somebody else, she can't go back and remarry her first husband. What's being said here? It's it's like saying marriage is not like square dancing. You know, when you have a square dance, you change partners and you might end up with the partner you started with. Okay. Deuteronomy 24 is saying you can't do that with marriage. You can't end up with your first spouse again. If she is divorced from her first spouse and then marries another and then gets divorced again, she can never go back to that first spouse. But what's interesting is the Pharisees ignore most of that. They ignore most of the wider context of the law and what it is addressing. And they just pick out the part about the divorce certificate. For them, that's the main thing, the divorce certificate. And it's as if the Pharisees think, well, so long as the paperwork is all in order, so long as the I's are dotted and the T's crossed, so long as you've got that certificate, a man can dump his wife at any time for any reason. That's clearly not what the purpose of Deuteronomy 24 was all about. Deuteronomy 24 does not commend divorce in any way. It simply regulates it. There are certainly situations in which divorce is a legitimate option. Everybody, Jesus and the Pharisees, everybody in ancient Israel would have agreed there are times in which divorce is lawful. But what the Pharisees have done is they have greatly expanded the grounds on which a man may divorce his wife far beyond the law's intention. That's one problem with their interpretation. We'll come back to that in just a minute. But there's another problem I want to point out here before we go further, another problem with their interpretation of the law. The Pharisees seem to assume that divorce is something only a man could initiate. Uh, That's not true. Under the law of Moses, there was actually equity. There was actually equality between men and women in this area. We also read, they've read for us, a little snippet from Exodus chapter 21. It's about a wife whose husband fails to provide her with clothes, food, and conjugal rights. In other words, he fails to love, honor, and keep her. Those are the three parts of the traditional marriage vows. What a husband promises to his wife. To love her, honor her, and keep her. Clothes, food, and conjugal rights. And if a man refuses to provide those for his wife, she's free to leave. She can... Divorce him. So a woman who was abandoned or abused by her husband would certainly be able to divorce him. She had rights under the law too. And Jesus even makes reference to that at the end of this passage, verse 12, where he talks about a woman divorcing her husband. Now he's talking about an illegitimate way to do that. But Jesus is acknowledging that right built into the law for women if grounds are there. And I want to point that out to you because I want you to understand, while biblical law is, yes, demanding and rigorous... It's also realistic and wise and compassionate in how it addresses situations that are wrecked by sin. That's really what this is about. Malachi 2.15 says God hates divorce, but to be more precise, what God really hates is the sin that brings divorce about. We're going to see that even in this passage here. Now, get back to Deuteronomy 24. That's really the main issue here, the point of discussion. It describes a man who divorces his wife because he finds some uncleanness in her. Now, the Pharisees, in fact, the Jews in general, debated amongst themselves what the uncleanness in view in Deuteronomy 24 could be. There was a stricter school of interpretation that limited it to adultery and perhaps a small group of other high-handed sins. And that group was actually on the right track, as we'll see. But the more common view in ancient Israel is what you could call the more liberal view that said a man could divorce his wife for pretty much any reason whatsoever. So if she burned the toast, or if she lost her youthful beauty, if a man found some uncleanness in her, something that displeased him, He could dissolve the marriage. In fact, I want you to understand, this view of marriage, their ancient version of no fault divorce, it was so common, the disciples themselves held to it. If you look at Matthew's account of this same story, the disciples there are shocked by Jesus' rigorous view of marriage. And they conclude that if you really can't opt out of marriage easily, if you really can't get out of marriage for this wide array of grounds, for almost any cause, then the disciples say, really, it's better to not marry at all. See, at this point, the disciples, like the Pharisees, want marriage to be a more flexible institution, you could say, Uh, one in which you can opt into and opt out of pretty much at will. Again, I point that out so you see that uh, the issues we face in our day are really nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. What is at stake here is the covenantal nature of marriage, the permanence of the marriage bond. God's design of marriage as one man and one woman in a lifelong covenant bond. That's really what's at stake in this discussion. Moses did permit divorce under certain conditions. Jesus acknowledges that as well. But divorce was not to be the norm. It was due to what Jesus calls in verse 5 hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. What is this hardness of heart? Well, it clearly describes acts of unrepentant covenant breaking. Not just any sin, but sin that is so serious that it strikes at the heart of the covenant itself. It's interesting, if you read Matthew 5, where Jesus teaches on divorce, or Matthew 19, which is Matthew's parallel account to this one, Jesus says there, any man who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So there are grounds for divorce. There are grounds for divorce, sexual immorality, but divorce for any other reason would be illegitimate. And you're not free to go remarry. You've got an obligation to go back and be reconciled with your spouse. Mark leaves out that exception clause. He leaves out that exception clause where Matthew includes it. Not because Mark disagrees with Matthew. It's not like you've got a Mark and Jesus that's different than the Matthaean. Jesus, but because Mark wants to call attention to the fact that if you divorce unlawfully, you're obligated to go back and be reconciled to your spouse and remarriage to someone else is not an option for you. You're not free in that way. And indeed, marriage to another would simply compound your sin. That's a hard teaching. And the reason the church doesn't talk about it is because it's hard to bring it up in any kind of... Context in which it doesn't end up hurting people's feelings or rubbing people the wrong way or raising all kinds of questions. But there it is. That's what you have. Mark includes the exception clause because he wants us to know adultery is a covenant-breaking act. And so if there is adultery, the innocent spouse, the non-adulterous spouse, is free to lawfully terminate the marriage if they desire. And they're free to remarry. Mark does not include the exception clause because he wants us to see the radical demand Jesus is putting on His disciples when they marry. What it means to be married and a follower of Jesus. See, apart from these very specific, identified grounds, grounds which would manifest hardness of heart, marriage is to be a permanent bond. Marriage is till death do us part. If you look at what Jesus goes on to say, this, what Jesus really wants to focus on is not what Moses might have permitted, those exceptional cases where divorce is permissible, but on what Jesus, on what Moses commanded. The positive vision for marriage that Moses had. Lays out. Look at what Jesus goes on to say. He corrects the Pharisees' misinterpretation of Scripture by going to another Scripture. He uses Genesis 1 and 2 to correct their misinterpretation of Deuteronomy chapter 24. Yes, Jesus says, Moses did permit divorce in certain cases because of the hardness of your hearts, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, that is a departure from God's original intention in creation. It's a departure from God's design for marriage. What is God's design? One of the Puritans put it this way. I really like this. He said, as as God in creation made two out of one, so in marriage He makes one out of two. In creation, God took the one Adam and made Eve, made two, out of the one. In marriage, God rejoins the two into one so that marriage is this one flesh covenant bond. God joins together a man and a woman as husband and wife. God creates the bond between them. That's what Jesus says. Let not man separate what God has joined together. So the pastor or or the civic official who presided over your wedding, he was God's instrument in bonding man and woman together as husband and wife. See, marriage is a covenant. Now again, covenants can be broken. They can be broken by radical sin. And when they're broken by that radical sin, divorce is lawful. If there are no such grounds and you divorce, the divorce itself becomes the radical sin. But again, there are grounds for Divorce. In fact, God Himself divorced Israel in Jeremiah chapter 3. It's very interesting. Jeremiah chapter 3. God says He is writing faithless Israel a certificate of divorce and He is sending her away for her adultery. So God is a divorced person, so to speak. He had an unfaithful bride He had to put away. So there's certainly room for divorced persons in the church. And indeed, if you've been through a divorce, God Himself knows the pain and the heartache of divorce. And of course, God's grace can heal and transform and forgive where there has been divorce. So there's no situation that's utterly hopeless. No situation that's so forsaken that it can't be reached by God's grace. But the point here is that the Pharisees are not using God's provisions for divorce in the law in a godly way. They have twisted the word of God to serve their own lusts. And in doing so, they disregarded the nature of marriage as a permanent covenant bond. They disregarded the rights of women. But of course, this is not an uncommon thing. In fact, it's very interesting. In our... Westminster Confession of Faith, a summary of what Scripture says about a number of different topics. On the, in the chapter on divorce, it says because of the, corrupt, because the corruption of men, men are apt to study arguments in order to justify unlawful divorces. Men are apt to study arguments. They're apt to try to invent reasons and rationales and justifications for what they want to do. That's what the Pharisees were doing. But many in our day do as well. The Pharisees, like many in our day, entered marriage not viewing it as a lifelong, God-formed, God-created covenant bond. They entered into marriage with divorce in their back pocket, so to speak, as a kind of plan B, as an option if they found the marriage no longer satisfying. Jesus counters all of that. He counters all of that by going back to God's original design in the creation. And He shows what marriage means for His disciples. Part of living for Jesus and following Jesus is staying in your marriage. Staying in your marriage even when it's incredibly difficult. Jesus is saying marriage is for peace. And that's because marriage is God's institution and it's God's gift. Again, Jesus says, what God has joined together, let not man separate. The Pharisees want to focus on permissions. Jesus wants to focus on what's commanded on this positive vision for marriage. God's design for marriage rooted in the creation. God's creational design for man and woman. And how divorce is a departure from that design. It reflects a hardness of heart somewhere. Because divorce shatters the one fleshness God calls us to in our marriages. That one flesh union of husband and wife was created to reveal Christ's one flesh union with His church. Jesus doesn't say that here, but he indicates it. I think he hints at it by going back to the creation account. And of course, Paul makes it very clear in Ephesians chapter 5, where he also goes back to the creation account. See, God created marriage not just for human good or to have a context for human procreation or, or to have a place in which a husband and wife could enjoy sexual relations with each other. All of that is wonderful. But ultimately, God created marriage to reveal redemption. Your marriage is real, but it's also just a symbol of a greater reality, a greater marriage. Marriage exists to be a public symbol of the gospel. And that's the problem with divorce. Divorce is an anti-gospel symbol. God created marriage to to reveal the covenant faithfulness that Christ and and His people have with one another. Divorce is a lie. It it, it mispictures that. It defaces the picture God intends marriage to manifest. We need to understand, even though the church doesn't talk about this a lot, divorce for Christians is not a private matter. It concerns the witness of the whole church. Not only because followers of Jesus need to be people who keep their promises. We need to be people who keep our covenants. But again, also because the faithfulness of two spouses to each other is designed to picture that eternal bond of love that Christ and His church share with one another. And so again, the problem with covenant breaking is that it lies about Christ's relationship with His church. When churches accept unbiblical divorce without doing anything, we not only undermine the institution of marriage itself, but we also undermine the gospel that marriage symbolizes. And of course, we also make our protests against other things like, say, same-sex marriage, seem empty and hypocritical and self-serving. Now, in a fallen world, certainly some marriages are going to be happier than others. But the truth is, all of our marriages have rough spots because we're all sinners. We're not all we should be, and so our marriages aren't all they should be either. If you're a single person and you're thinking, oh, if only I could get married, that would solve all my problems, just go talk to a married person and you'll find... Marriage itself is not a problem solver. In fact, it might create a whole new set of problems for you. Much more complicated and difficult problems. But it's also really, really clear here that Jesus fully expects His followers to be able to make marriage work. He fully expects His followers to be able to make their marriages a fitting symbol of Christ's marriage to His bride, the church. So the kind of love and joy that Christ shares with His bride, the church, that that would be reflected in Christian marriages. Marriages between Christ's disciples. And that can happen as we begin to embrace God's covenantal design for marriage. It can happen when we receive our marriages as God's work and our spouses as God's gift. It can happen when we embrace the symbolism that's built into marriage and play the role assigned to us as a husband or wife in terms of that symbolism. The picture you really get from the New Testament's teaching on marriage is that marriage is, at one and the same time, both glorious and incredibly difficult. Or perhaps we should say it is gloriously difficult. Uh, A while back, I read a series of interviews that... uh, were with older couples who had been married for several decades, and they shared their secrets uh, to making it work. It was interesting to read. Uh, There was one older woman. uh, I think she'd been married for 50-plus years. She was asked how she and her husband had stayed together for so long. And she said, Well, the reason that Charlie and I are still married is that to this point, neither one of us has died. And that about sums it up, right? I mean, if you're looking for a secret, you know, (laughs) that's about as close as you're going to get. Another woman was asked if she and her husband had ever thought about divorcing each other. And she said, no, no, that was not an option. We never thought about divorcing each other. Now, we did think about murdering each other. But not divorcing. We knew divorce was not an option. One of the things that came out of those interviews is that uh, couples... Uh, do themselves a big disservice when they blame each other. You know, when, when they, we have a tendency to only focus on the sin of the other and ignore our own sin, we go easy on ourselves and we're hard on our spouses. We've got to understand we can't blame our spouses for what's going wrong in the marriage. To blame your spouse is like saying your side of the boat is sinking. Okay, you see the problem with that? I mean, if one side sinks, the whole thing goes down. Whatever obstacles are in the way, a Christian husband and wife must be committed to overcoming those obstacles together by the grace of God. The love of Christ must be at the center of the marriage. Christ must be at the center of the marriage. And that's what enables a husband and wife to work through anything. Because through Christ, you find power to change. You can actually put to death those sins that are disrupting fellowship with your spouse. You find grace to forgive. You can actually forgive all those ways in which your spouse has sinned against you. Consider with me for a few minutes here some of the reasons why marriages in our culture, both in the church and in the world, break up. Why do some marriages not make it? A big part of the reason for so much divorce is that we put pressure on our marriages and therefore on our spouses that they weren't made to bear. Don't expect your spouse to provide ultimate satisfaction. Don't expect your spouse to meet all your needs. If you do so, you have made an idol out of marriage. You have made an idol out of your spouse. Your spouse is not ultimate. Sex is not ultimate. Kids are not ultimate. The only thing that's ultimate is God Himself. See, what we ultimately need is not just a love that is till death do us part, what we ultimately need is a love that survives death, a love that is stronger than death, a love that overcomes death. And of course, that can only be the love of Christ. And so don't mistake the shadow, the shadow love that you hope to receive from your spouse, from the reality, the real love, the ultimate love that only God can provide. Your cry for completeness, yes, God will meet some of your needs. At some of your longings through giving you a spouse. But your cry for completeness can ultimately only be answered in God. I think another reason for so much divorce in our day really has to do with our motives for getting married in the first place. You know, most people today, if you were to ask, they would say they get married uh, for the sake of happiness. Because this other person makes me happy. Well, the truth is, if you make happiness a higher goal than holiness or a higher goal than covenant faithfulness, then obviously you're only going to stay in the marriage so long as it's satisfying, so long as it's working for you, so long as it's making you happy. As soon as you're not so happy, as soon as the marriage gets hard or demanding or requires sacrifice in order to make it work, what are you going to do? You're going to opt out. You're going to be constantly doing a cost-benefit analysis. What's it cost me to stay in this marriage? What would be the benefits of getting out? And as soon as the benefits of getting out seem to outweigh the cost of staying in, you're out of there. But see, that's how you approach marriage. You've really approached your spouse as an object really as a means to the end of your own fulfillment. That kind of consumerist approach to marriage is directly opposed to the covenantal approach to marriage God calls us to. On the covenantal approach, marriage is not about constantly making sure you married the right person. It's about making sure you're becoming the right person. You ask not what your spouse can do for you, but what you can do for your spouse. The best marriages begin when we marry the one we love. But those marriages grow and flourish as we learn to love the one we've married. There's no, I'm, I'm a big fan of romantic love and falling in love and all of that. That's wonderful. That's beautiful. But love, for it to be the kind of love a disciple of Jesus should show, this kind of covenantal love, love has to move from feeling to action. It has to move from raw, com, raw emotion to commitment. If a marriage is based on nothing more than feelings, as soon as those feelings shift, the whole basis for the marriage cracks and it soon falls apart. C.S. Lewis talks about this when he talks about what it means to fall in love versus staying in love. Lewis points out that the fairy tale ending, and they lived happily ever after, does not mean that they felt exactly the same way the next 50 years that they felt on their wedding day. You can't run a marriage on that kind of love. The kind of love we're called to in the covenant of marriage is, yeah, it's going to involve feelings certainly, but it's much, much more than that. It's a love that enables us to serve our spouse. It's a love that enables us to serve our spouse even in those moments we don't really like our spouse. Love is not when you say, I am blind to all your faults. It's when you say, I can see all your faults and I love you Anyway, so important, you know, you may be able to plan your wedding and have everything come off without a hitch, but you cannot plan your marriage. And you have no idea what obstacles, what difficulties lie ahead of you, all kinds of crazy things that can happen along the way. What keeps you together is not your feelings of love, but it's this covenantal love, this committed love. Love. Another reason we have so much divorce today, the sexual revolution has not been able to keep its promises. The sexual revolution said the church and its patriarchy has oppressed us sexually and especially oppressed women. But what more and more in our society are finding is that our so called sexual liberation is really just slavery. And indeed, what we're finding is that sex without mystery, sex without covenant, actually leads to brokenness and boredom. It simply doesn't satisfy. All the promises of the sexual revolution have turned out to be lies. Sex outside of covenant, sex outside of marriage is dehumanizing, it's degrading. And again, that's because God designed us for sex within marriage to point to this ultimate union of Christ and the church. And I think the church has a great opportunity in terms of its mission in this area today. See, men and women today think they're looking for sex. Any TV show or you know, so much of popular music, it's all about men and women looking for sex. That's what people think they want. What they really are looking for is what sex points to. They think they're looking for sex. What they really are looking for is what sex symbolizes. It's been said that the man who knocks on the door of a brothel is really searching for God. He just doesn't know it. Uh, Tim Keller put it this way. He said, Freud, you know, the great psychologist Freud said religiosity is just pent-up sexual desire. Actually, it's the other way around. Sexual desire is pent-up religiosity. Remember, sex, it's, it's a glorious gift. But it's just a shadow. Union with God is the reality that points to Why else is divorce so common in our day? And I know I'm going a bit long today, but i I think this topic is so important for us let me talk about this a little bit more divorce is common because men and women no longer understand their roles I have more to say about this next week but we no longer really know what a husband is or what a wife is we no longer understand what masculinity is all about or what femininity is all about Jesus goes back to the creation account and says God made them male and female. God made us equal but different. He made us different in order to complement and complete one another. The man was made to complete the woman and the woman was made to complete the man. Paul picks up on this and builds on it in Ephesians 5. He says, the husband, the the role of the husband, the job description of the husband is to love his wife in a Christ-like, sacrificial way. As her head, he is to protect her and provide for her. It is written into the soul of a man to be a protector and provider for a woman. And what is the wife to do? She is to submit to her husband as the church does to Christ. She is to show him respect and honor. It is written into the soul of a woman that she is to give herself in respect to her husband. You see, in a fallen world, we we twist these roles. Some men, instead of being servant leaders, are tyrannical leaders. And so a man thinks, oh, I'm the head. And so headship means, I get to wear the crown, I get to hold the remote, I'm the boss. What Paul and Jesus would say to that is, yeah, you're the head, so you do get to wear the crown, just make sure it's a crown of thorns. Because that's the kind of crown Jesus wore. And understand too, man, just because you're the head doesn't mean you're the brains. A man who loves his wife will listen to her and he will be willing to defer to his wife in those areas, and I can assure you they are many, in those areas where she has greater knowledge and expertise. Essentially, a man needs to understand the way you treat your wife is the way you're asking God to treat you. Your marriage is to be a picture of Christ's relationship to the church and how you treat your wife is how you're saying you want to be treated by Christ Himself. And so if you don't treat your wife with love and with kindness, if you're harsh or cruel to her, you're saying, God, I want you to be harsh and cruel to me. So men, you can't have a first-class marriage if you treat your wife as second-class. You need to understand too, men, that you can't do what God has called you to do without help. From your wife, without re- without humbling yourself and receiving help from your wife. You know, we make a big deal. I mean, I've done this before. You've heard me talk about this. In Genesis chapter 2, God creates Adam first, and, and he's given a job to do, and, and he realizes that he is alone. In Genesis 2, the text says it's not good for the man to be alone. And we hear that aloneness, and we think, well, the real problem with Adam is that he was lonely, and that's why God gave him a wife to cure his loneliness. That's certainly part of it. But Adam doesn't just need a companion. He needs a co-worker. God gave him a job to do, to subdue the earth and have dominion over it. And that job is too big for him to do. He needs a woman to help him. And so she's given as his helper, as his co-worker. And of course, calling her helper does not degrade her in any way. It doesn't make her second class at all. You know who's called helper most often in Scripture? God Himself. In fact, that's one of the titles given to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is our helper. That's the woman's calling, to be a helper to the man. But of course, in our day, women are just as confused as men about their roles. And there's just as much rebellion here. The Apostle Paul plainly tells wives to submit to their husbands. Now, that's not exactly a word, the submission word, that rolls off the tongue today but I want you to notice how Paul describes it women are not women in general are not to submit to men in general. what Paul says is that wives are to submit to their own particular husbands and what's the model for this? The real model for this is Jesus submission to his father. Jesus, the son, is equal to his father, but he obeys his father because that's his calling. He submits himself to his father's will and his father's plan and his father's mission for him. He's in submission. Well, that's exactly what a wife is called to do as well. Now, of course, in a fallen world, submission has to be qualified. The husband's authority is not absolute. She should never follow her husband into sin. But in general, she should respect her husband's leadership and vision. She doesn't compete with her husband. She seeks to complement him and complete him. Marriage is like a dance. And her husband has to leave, and she's to follow her husband's lead. Now, that's not always easy to do. You know, Ginger Rogers once said I did everything Fred did, only backwards and in high heels. Okay? So, no, nobody's saying submission is easy. But just like a dance where two partners are gracefully moving across the dance floor and it looks like the two are one because their motion is so synchronized, when a husband and wife are in sync with each other, it is good and it is beautiful. Rejecting Jesus' design for marriage leads to disaster. But when we embrace this design of husbands lovingly leading and wives respectfully following. What you have is a recipe for flourishing. A recipe for a flourishing family. Why does Jesus value marriage so highly? Because marriage is God's institution created and defined by Him in the beginning. It's integral to God's plan for humanity. But it's not just that. Jesus values marriage because He's a married man himself and he wants our marriages to picture his marriage to his bride the church he laid down his life for his bride his bride respectfully submits to him that's what he wants our marriages to picture as christians today you know we're asking what can we do to support marriage in the face of attack and redefinition Certainly part of the answer to that question is living faithfully in our own marriages so that our own marriages display God's creative wisdom and redemptive grace. And certainly part of the answer to that question is we should help the marriages of others around us so others can grow and flourish in their marriages so Christian homes will be full of love and romance and joy and gratitude and wedded bliss. But ultimately... The best way for any of us, whether single or married, the best way any of us can exalt marriage is by trusting in the true bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as his, his bride, the church, submitting ourselves to him, rejoicing in the love he has for us. Next time you go to a wedding... This is what I want you to do. You know, I'm always right there in the front when I officiate a wedding. I'm right there next to the bridegroom so I get to see this. You know, when the bride starts to walk down the aisle, what does everybody watch? Everybody watches the bride and, and how beautiful and how gorgeous she looks. But I'm right there next to the bridegroom, and that guy, you have never seen him smile bigger than that moment when his wife starts to walk down the aisle. Next time you go to a wedding, this is what I want you to do. As soon as the bride starts to walk down the aisle, don't look at her, look at him. And when you see that smile, remember, Jesus loves you like that. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the husbandly love of Jesus for His bride, the church. We thank You for the redeeming love of Jesus, that He has conquered sin, Satan, and death in order to have His bride to win her hand in marriage. We thank You for His grace that cleanses us and forgives us and empowers us. And we ask You now, help us to align our desires with Your design for us. Help us to witness to the Gospel, especially by how we live in our marriages, but especially by how we live in our churchly marriage to You, Christ Jesus, our Bridegroom, our Eternal Husband. Amen.